0: If you can, turn to Psalm 86 with me. Psalm 86. Psalm 86, verse 11. And it says this It says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love toward me, and you have delivered me from the depths of the grave. I've been thinking about, I find myself thinking about two things uh, lately, the last couple weeks. And whenever you think about things, what you mean is that there's a, a loose center of gravity, and you keep kind of coming back around that little um, cluster of things, or that you know that planet and its satellites, you know what I'm talking about, and, and you just somehow find yourself always being sucked into that. And I've, I've had two of those centers of gravity in my life the last couple weeks. One of them is all the change that's going on in the world, uh, and I'm talking all the change that's going on in the world, because I don't know about you, but to me it feels like uh, it's pretty significant, uh, and so I find myself just continually coming back to that, and then I find myself uh, partly because of that conversation and partly just because of different things, coming back to thinking about uh, what what it was that I was called to do when I was called to plant a church. So what, what really was going on as God was giving me my calling or working in my life to be someone who would, who would steward or shepherd uh, a church community. And, and so those two things have kind of been going on. The first one is interesting because it, it, it's outside the church, but it's also something that touches the church. Uh, everything from what's going on in global Christianity with the persecution of Christians to what's going on in global politics, the concern that a war on terror now has kicked back up, that uh, issues in, in different countries, and certainly our own, uh, are flaring back up. Do you know, I, I read an article this week that said of the, 100, I think it was 143 nations that the Global Peace Index monitors, uh, that only 11 of them would be called uh, peaceful countries, like not in, engaged in any kind of external or internal conflict. Um, So only 11 countries in the whole world out of 140-something would be considered countries at peace. And they said that the high-water mark or or a high-water mark, a recent high-water mark was 2007. And that now in 2014, we're actually approaching um, kind of post-World War II lows, if you will. I mean, we're really as, as a, a world moving back into conflict in the absence of peace. And that's, that's got to bother us at some level, right? Um, and you begin to wonder, what's, what's God doing in that? What's his plan for that? What are we supposed to speak to it? But then I realize, because my, my quick answer is, well, it's the church. The answer is the church that brings the message and the life of Jesus Christ to the world and embodies peace in a spiritual way or with spiritual power that that can't be embodied any other way. So the answer for me is the church. I, I believe the church, the local church, is the hope of the world. I believe the local church is the hope of the world. When you go to places that have had turmoil, It's the church, in a lot of ways, that helps those communities rebuild or to grow. It's the church that that tends to stand up to things. It's the church that can speak into poverty or other issues. It's the church in Ferguson and pastors there that were trying to call out uh, people coming in from outside the state to make trouble. And it was the church trying to keep it peaceful and reminding people of the higher calling they have while exercising free speech to do it in a way that reflects uh, the dignity and the worth that they're, they're trying to promote for all people. Um, the church is incredibly important. And, and so my answer to all the change in the world is that the church really matters. We have to, to come back to understanding the church and the church's mission or the missio dei that, that we carry and that we steward as, as Christians who... who uh, find community together or gather together. Do you know the word ekklesia in Greek, which, which means church, simply means gathered? Um, the church is the gathered group of Christians. It's, it's when we come together and Christ binds us together, and then as we're rejuvenated or encouraged or, or trained or taught or, or whatever it might be, that we then walk out, and even though we're not together physically we're still bound together spiritually as a community or as uh, the body of Christ um, invisibly. And we go out to take what we get here and we be salt and light in the world. I mean, that's the, the beautiful picture of the, the inhale-exhale of the church as we're breathing into um, this world hopefully breathing life, and there's something incredibly important about breath and life as you look at Scripture. That's what it's supposed to look like. Then you look at all the the, the goings-on in the church and all the blogs being written about certain pastors and and megachurches, and it's easy to become disillusioned with church. Um... There's a, a well-known megachurch pastor that's been on vacation while his empire has been crumbling, and he's back in the pulpit today, and everyone's eagerly awaiting to hear, is he, is he going to resign, or is he going to fight a lot of the allegations of, of spiritual abuse and abuse of funds and everything else that have come out against him or, or what he's been stewarding? And it's, I don't know enough to, to take sides on that, but I do know enough to see that there's something problematic not only there but, but in a lot of churches in America where it becomes about church growth, church as business, church as being its own success story because of size and impact but somehow in all of that missing the most fundamental element of church and that's simply this, that church is people. How can a church exist if it means the gathering together of the people if people aren't kind of first and foremost what church is about? The body of Christ is made up of people, not programs, not church buildings, not new initiatives or new events or new conferences, um, but the body of Christ is made up of people. And church, the local church, if it's anything, it's people. If we understand it right, it's people feeling loved, cared for, connected. It's a community that develops and has enough spiritual vitality that there's health rather than accusations of of leaders abusing those people that have been entrusted to them um, for ulterior motives and ends. If you look at John 10, turn with me there real quick. John chapter 10. Jesus comes into a culture that I think was rife with spiritual abuse. And What does Jesus say? He says this, he says, I tell you the truth, John 10, I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Then Jesus continues, and he says, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate who enters through me will be saved. He who will, uh, he will come in and go out and find pasture. But the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Um, let me just continue on. I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep, so he... He sees the wolf coming. He abandons the sheep and he runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. This whole passage is Jesus simply saying, listen, uh, the real shepherd, which I'm the picture of, sees the people, the sheep. And his focus is the sheep. He comes in through the gate and he calls them by name. He knows them. And his purpose is to speak to them. And then ultimately his purpose is to lead them. And he goes before them. And just think of any picture of leadership where in military uh, the commander goes out in front and leads the troop or whatever. It's that picture of true leadership, servant leadership, of sacrifice. And so the true shepherd goes out and, and the sheep follow him. And ultimately there's a sacrifice and the true shepherd lays down his life for the sheep because the whole point of a shepherd is the sheep. The whole point and the only point of a shepherd is the sheep. And Jesus is saying there's another way where somebody comes in through the side and isn't looking the sheep in the eyes and he's not calling the sheep by name and he's got ulterior motives. The sheep serve um, as a means to an end of this kind of shepherd and he's not looking to lead them out. He's looking to take, uh, kill, steal, and destroy. simply means I'm going to use you up, I'm going to take from you, or I'm going to manipulate. But, but ideally, you, you exist to serve kind of the higher goals or purposes over here. And so I've heard and read statements from um, people that are in hot water right now saying, I lead the people that lead people that lead people, Um. And, and I, everything begins to be about the plans and the visions on paper to reach 50,000 people or churches that, that have a number of people they're going to reach in their city or a percentage of people or whatever it might be. And so decisions are being made unto that end. But it's like, what does that number of quantity say about anything other than you've reached an arbitrary goal of numbers? And so somehow we have to come back and understand there's something all throughout Scripture that's incredibly important about the body of Christ, about the people of God being first and foremost people. Turn to Ezekiel 34. Jesus, the more we sit into Scripture, the more we realize the bulk of what he's saying is simply quoting or or using the Old Testament to speak forward into the life of people around him, um, things that they would would know or understand. So I just want to read uh, Ezekiel 34 and just kind of listen because it repeats enough times that you get the idea. So I'm going to read a lot of verses, but that's okay. Just get the main kind of import of what's being said here. So Ezekiel 34 says this, "The, "'The word of the Lord came to me. "'Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel.' Prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says Woe to the shepherds of Israel, who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, you clothe yourselves with wool, and you slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. And so they were scattered because there was no one to shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every hill. And they were scattered over the whole earth. And no one searched or looked for them. A couple things I want to point out here. So they were scattered. Why? Because there was no shepherd. There was no leadership. We, we see almost daily people doing studies on the 20-somethings or the young generation of the church, almost wholesale walking away from um, the faith of their childhood or certainly local church affiliation. We we hear and read those statistics. It's alarming. Why why do people leave? Because there's no leadership. I think that generation kind of the media generation that they are growing up with all that, they understand nuance. And I think they understand when it's it's a business with ulterior motives rather than a spiritual uh, community or an authentic community, a true community. And so they don't want any any part of it if it's not shooting straight or if it's not real. Why would I need to really submit to that? And so they go and they wander. But I would submit to you that they... They don't find anything good because God's plan for his people was that they would be in community in the local church. Um, Just like no child appears miraculously, um, children are born to, to mothers, right? And when people become children and we're born into the family of God, guess what? We're born into families too. We're not born as spiritual orphans. God intends for us, and and if we feel like we might have been, God intends for every orphan to try to find a family in a community. Um, We're not meant to go it alone, and that's what's so funny about a lot of our church things that grow big programs or grow big numbers, is they're all designed to make individual people feel like God loves them individually. And cares about their problems more uniquely than he cares about anyone else's problems. So there's something really interesting of the churches that are trying to dial it in for growth. That everyone comes and feels like there's this real strong thing going on with me and Jesus. But not so much with Jesus and all of us. Which completely misses the covenants. God always covenants himself with his people. And we share in those covenants collectively We find our identity as children of God with the family of God. Like there's something, I mean, I shouldn't even have to talk about this. It's so matter of fact, right? But we we lose sight of that. Just like we can live in a world where all the missionaries are white and we don't understand what's slowly shaping that, We can live in an individualistic culture that's slowly shaping the way we perceive religion and not even realize that we're somehow becoming less and less biblical or that our understanding of our relationship with God is becoming more and more divorced from the corporate, covenantal relationship with us, our family, our community, um, our church, than, than what God really intended or communicated. So they scatter because there's no shepherd. Um, you have ruled them harshly and brutally, it says. So as leaders, you've come and you've bossed them around. And you boss them, why? Because they serve you. I've been trying to teach my 12-year-old something. Um, I'll let you know maybe in six months how it's going. But I'm trying to teach her the difference between the boss voice in the coach voice, let me explain what I mean by that. The boss's voice says, do what I say, period, okay? The coach's voice says, listen to what I say because it's going to be ultimately for your greatest good. You'd be wise to heed my voice. Just think of a tennis player, I haven't watched tennis in a long time, Who's, Someone give me a name. That's, that's the name I was going to go with, but that, he hadn't existed in like 50 years. Um, some, who? 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 Sharapova. Okay. Maria Sharapova. Um, it's easier with a guy. Someone give me a guy. Nader? Nadal. 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 <laughs> I've told you guys I have four daughters and I don't watch SportsCenter anymore. Um, and that isn't meant to be. That sounded wrong. Um, anyways, all right, back on track. So uh, Nadal, uh, Pete Sampras, let's just, let's just, I, I need to feel like I'm in my comfort zone here. So Pete Sampras, uh, you know, he was at the top of the game for a very long time, but they all have their own personal coaches right? There's a whole lot of voices in the stands yelling a whole lot of things, and they don't need to pay attention to those voices at all, right? But there's one voice in the stands that they have selected, and they've selected that voice. Why? Because they know that that voice has the knowledge, the discernment, uh, and the skill to see and assess and recognize what they could be doing to help them perform better and they, they have brought that voice into their life in such a way, whether paying for that voice or it's a relationship going way back, that they trust that voice. This person, even if they can't play tennis as good as I can play tennis, they can certainly, because they're another set of eyes that are looking at me from a different perspective than I experience things, they can call out things for me that will help me perform better. That's the coach's voice. Does that make sense? Okay. So I'm trying to teach my daughter because I think what happens is right around the age she's at, everything sounds like the boss's voice. Everything sounds like the voice telling you to do something. So if you're not discerning or mature, you just assume that all those voices are the same. And so I'm trying to teach Mary Joy, hey, listen, there's the boss voice, and and sometimes that's going to exist. And you have to submit to it because it's what's right. Okay, but, that I'm, but I'm trying to find a way of talking to you where I'm a coach in your life. I've lived longer. You trust me to, that, that, that you, you know that I'm, or you believe that I'm knowledgeable, that I'm wise, that I'm discerning. Uh, you know that I love you and that I care about you. And you need to learn that sometimes my voice is speaking to you because if you would take my advice or do what I say, implement kind of what, what I'm bringing to you, it would go better for you, maybe not in the short run, but the way people perceive you, or the opportunities that are going to come your way, or when you look back 10 years from now, and you, you're like, "Wow, I wish I had of actually practiced my musical instrument, you know, whatever it is." Like I'm trying to tell you now, from my experience, what, what I wish I could go back and tell myself when I was your age, to coach his voice. okay? When a pastor is leading his church correctly, when elders are leading the church correctly, it's a very humble, I believe, ought to be a very humble, transparent, coach's voice. Here is what we're bringing to you. Here is what we're saying to you. Here's what we're trying to teach biblically that that God has said to all of us that if we would live or obey Um, as we kind of lean into these things, as we walk by faith, that God will then prove himself faithful and he will honor and bless our obedience that way. And it's not gonna be easy and it's not gonna go quick and it might not grow big programs or this or that or the other, but this is what God has called us to, to be people first in relationship, working out the nitty gritty of relationship. Um, Has anyone ever heard the, if you want to, Be like Jesus, then stay single, because Jesus was single. But if you want to become like Jesus, then get married, because it'll sanctify you. Anyone ever heard that? It's the problem of of going to like a Bible college. You get all the decade worth of quips and quotes. Um, There's something about being in a relationship that forces us to be real with each other. There's something about that that forces us to be honest. There's something about that that we need because when we're only pursuing agendas, sooner or later we're going to wake up and go, I feel lonely. I feel lonely. I know what that's like just because I happen to be a leader and I think most leaders feel lonely because the nature of relationship is usually that you're giving or pouring or serving um, and it's hard for you to find your peer group, right? Right? So I know, I know what lonely feels like. I don't think God intends for us to feel like that. And if we're always pursuing ends or if people are means to an end, if we're always going that way, we're not really understanding that we were made for relationship, then somehow, some way, we wake up one day and we go, I got exactly what I wanted. I made it all about me and now it's just me. And it shouldn't be that, certainly from the leadership standpoint. Timothy, I'll just read it to you real quick. Paul says this when he's talking to Timothy about how to pick elders. He says, "Is as this aside, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? I think that we, we all have to learn how to develop that coach's voice and to shepherd and to sacrifice and to give our life and so God was condemning the leaders of Israel saying, woe to these shepherds. And so Jesus picks that, that thread up and says, if you want to know who I am, I'll tell you who I am. Look at the health of the flock and you'll know that I'm a true leader, that I'm a good shepherd. Um, we started by reading. So I'm really grieved is the point with what I see happening in as what we see happening just with some of these churches that uh, are the cracked foundations are kind of showing through and it makes me even more want to say that Antioch has to commit ourselves we have to commit ourselves to be known for our relationality and our community and for the people we've been known for a lot of things in the eight years I've been here we've been known for art we've been known for our music We've been known for bringing a conversation on justice uh, forward in a way that maybe other churches hadn't, a biblical conversation on justice. We've been known for our children's ministries. We've been known for, uh, and some people are, our empty nesters group. It's kind of a cool thing to be known for. Um, A lot of of people that find community and pursue things and go camping and serve locally. We've been known for a lot of things, um, and I hope that In some way, we continue to be known for some of those things. I love that we've brought the arts or or at different times we've been able to infuse um, what we're doing or talking about with with beauty and with meaning um, from art. I mean, God gives artistic talent because it amplifies the content, the clarity, the experience of it, all those things. I hope we're still known for some of those things as we move forward. But we have to be known first and foremost for being about people. Jesus says, They're going to know you are my disciples by your love. You've got the New York Times and the Washington, something, I don't know. You have major newspapers this week running articles on this megachurch in Seattle um, arguing that it's known not for its people, but for its abusive people. That should terrify us. Um, what is Antioch going to be known for? What is your small group going to be known for? What is your family culture going to be known for? Are we really going to prioritize and put people first? So you have on one end Jesus saying they're going to know you're my disciples by your love, and on the other end, uh, on the other end, the world is looking at very visible church examples and seeing what the opposite. And so the statistics shouldn't surprise us. So that's why I started thinking about this verse again. Psalm 86, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. This is one of the verses that I memorized when I first um, kind of flipped my life around and started pursuing uh, God wholeheartedly. Um, this is one of the first essay, uh, essays I ever wrote. This was this verse And sitting at my computer, I couldn't, you guys know this story, but I couldn't sleep until two because everyone else was at the bars and they'd come back in. So I had nothing to do for hours as I was kind of sitting in this dorm room. I started writing these little essays on Bible verses. One of the first essays I wrote was on this verse. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. When I wrote that little essay, the the word I picked up on was undivided uh, or undivided heart. And I started writing this whole, I, I kind of think it's a cheesy little article now, but I started writing this whole thing about like the human heart, is di- that's, it, it's divided. It's how it works. Two chambers that, that pump blood through our body. And, and so I kind of used that as this like metaphor for jumping off and saying, what does it mean to have an undivided heart, you know, for the thing to be blah, 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 blah. blah. So that was my little essay. Now I think it's kind of morbidly bloody sounding essay. Um but I think what's going on here as I look at it now is you see a form of Hebrew parallelism that's easy to miss. Hebrew parallelism, I've brought it up before, but it's anytime you see in scripture a restatement of the same thing. So God, I want to know you in your righteousness, I want to know you in your justice and, you know, something like that. Righteousness and justice is one of those couplets that shows up a lot. Um it's, it's restating or underscoring or defining or informing one by the other, but it's basically using that couplet to kind of drive the message home. And this verse, Psalm 86, 11, is actually a Hebrew uh, parallel structure. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. So an undivided heart says a lot about understanding God's teachings. An undivided heart really is basically saying that I'm set apart for or consecrated to follow God's teachings. That when he teaches me the way to go, when God speaks the coach voice into my life, that I would be set apart unto that. That's what it means for me to be a saint or to be holy um, this thing that we see in the New Testament, that when we're, we belong to, to God, we're his saints, we're, we're holy. It's the same Greek word. Holy is the adjective of the noun um, saint. It's the same word, though, okay, to be set apart. So I, I'm to be set apart to the Lord's teaching. And, and what does that really mean? It means this, that I will walk in that way, um, and that I will fear your name. So fearing God's name and walking in his truth go together. If I truly fear God's name, if I realize, man, God, you're bigger than ISIS, and you're bigger than racism in America, and you're bigger than misunderstandings, and you're bigger than um, difficult situations, and you're bigger than... uh, Broken mega churches that hurt or wound people, and you're bigger than the crappy blogs that try to make a name for themselves by always talking about the crappy pastors. I, my dad's gonna be mad at me for using the word crappy. Um, sometimes, anyways, descriptive language. But I, you're bigger than all of this craziness and change and. and and confusion. You're bigger than all of this, and you're bigger than my hurt, and you're bigger than my pain, and you're bigger than my, my impatience. that I, I did wait for two years, or four years, or five years for you to work in my life, but you're not working. I don't see it, God, and my patience is running out. You're bigger than my, my thought that it has to be on my time schedule. You're bigger than that. God, you're bigger. I know you're bigger than all this. So as hard as it is, I will submit and I will stay here where I know I'm supposed to be underneath you. And and synonymous with that is walking in his ways. That, That I would walk in the way that you teach, that you lead. The commands, the coaching voice, what God shapes us toward or points out to us as being what life is all about. I'm willing to walk in that. There's a truth to that. So do you see that parallelism? Let me read it for you one more time. Teach me your way, O Lord, goes with give me an undivided heart, that I will walk in your truth, which is synonymous with that I may fear your name. This verse has shaped my life about as much as as any verse has shaped my life. It's partly why I'm in Bend, Oregon. You see, I was felt that I was called to plant a church in 1997. I was in Orange County at the time. And I assumed that I was going to plant a church in Orange County. And that like every other church in Orange County, it would be 100,000 people within a week. Um, and it would be just a wonderful, wonderful thing. And then I got married in 2000. And... God used two things. One, uh, Tamara and my belief that um, there was something about her and the fact that she was from Central Oregon and watching her ministry that just didn't jive with um, how how surfacy I think Orange County can be. Um, And then secondly, I became really disillusioned with what I would call Orange County Christianity that I think, for me, church planting in Orange County was about the, the formula of how to do it and how to do the buildings and how to align the programs and, and how to work the process to pop a really large megachurch and then to be in this kind of club where you're competing with other megachurch pastors um, for what I don't even know, whatever. But that's what I began to feel in my heart was the game plan of if I stayed there and planted there. And I began to realize I, I didn't see the kinds of conversations happening there I wanted to have about justice in the church, um, about transparency in the church, about, about shooting straight in the church, about trying to really make people think rather than just um, entertaining people. And it's not that every church is like that, but that's what it began to feel like for me. I began to feel like I was being suffocated by what I called Orange County Christianity. And so I remember one night, um, Tam and I sitting in our living room with a small apartment in Whittier with a crack foundation because of the Whittier earthquake and where all the ants used to come in. Um, and I realized um, we're not supposed to be in Orange County. Um, I'm we need to go somewhere where there's a clean foundation, where I can have an undivided heart, where I can try to focus on this idea of putting God above everything and try to, in my own life and with a church, figure out how to walk in God's truth. And so the Northwest, because it's unchurched, uh, because it's different, because it allows you to kind of start over, Central Oregon, because it's kind of on an island. I mean, you're, we're insulated from all the whatever. I, when I go speak at, um, to pastors and I tell this story, I usually tell them that down in Orange County, I felt like every week that I had to compete with the latest 40 days of this or that. You always had to copy. Now I feel like um, Rick Warren could die and I wouldn't hear about it for three months. It's not true because the bloggers, but... Um, but I, I really do feel like we get to think it through, God, what are you calling us to do as, as people that serve, as people that are involved, as elders, as small group leaders, as Christians that want something more honest and authentic than maybe what you experienced before, that we get to really continue to wrestle with this and say, God, help us to continue to, to reset and to come back and to center ourselves and say, how does this thing look real? Not only to you, but in looking real to you, to the world as well. How do we bring it back to people and not get hung up on programs? How do we walk into this humbly and not try and act like we got it all figured out? Because um, we don't. We don't. I mean, there are people that have left Antioch because it wasn't what it should have been for them and so don't don't misunderstand me we're not perfect but we need to keep true north true north I might not be able to follow my compass perfectly but that doesn't mean the north star moves its location does that make sense And so we need to be able to question ourselves enough and say, we want to be about people. The body of Christ is about people. We want to find ourselves in relationship. We need to learn how to serve each other. We need to learn how to press into it and go deeper and not just go, well, those people aren't loving enough or they, they didn't receive me. Well, how hard did you try? And did you persevere? And when you were asking or looking for other people to receive you were, you, were you realizing that there was a whole lot of other people out there that were looking at you thinking, how come they don't receive me? You know, like, are we really willing to lean into this? Not like consumers, but like contributors. Like members of the body of Christ. Like people committed to this thing called the local church like people who really believe that the local church matters because if we can't get it right here, how are we really going to tell the next generation that the answer to a lot of the turmoil and change that we see in the world is going to be a vibrant and healthy church working in those communities, showing people that that Jesus came to bring life and life to the full. So as we move forward into this fall, as we look at the news, as we think about what we're trying to do here, my prayer is simply this, that it's not a conversation just with leaders, but that we as a church would commit to trying to be a part of what it means, um, what it really means to be the church. Um, that's the, the, the hard part for me, is the health of Antioch is outside or beyond my control. I'm trusting you with the health of Antioch for me. And likewise, you have to trust other people and me for the health of Antioch for you. And as we all lean in, again, not as consumers but as contributors, may we find what I think we all know deep in our gut or in our heart that we really long for and desire. May we find that. I pray. Thank you.